This may look like a solitary sport, but it's a team effort. So said a lady named Diana Nyad after she became last month the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without the help of a shark net. Uh, that's a 177 kilometre swim. Took her 53 hours of continuous swimming to do it. She dived into the water in Cuba on a Saturday morning, swam all day Saturday, all day Sunday, dragged herself out of the water in Florida the following Monday afternoon. And speaking on the beach, an exhausted Diana said, this may look like a solitary sport, but it's a team effort. She was, of course, paying tribute to the support team, who, uh, without whom she wouldn't have been able to do the swim. But it was good for her to say that as I watched it on the news, I thought, because sort of the little news grab that they had on the headlines, uh, it was all about her, really. It just had a close-up shot of her swimming. It was her who was speaking into the camera. It was her who filled the screen as she was get, walking up the beach. And so you could easily get the impression that it was just her doing this, but she wanted to know that it wasn't. It may look like a solitary sport, but it's a team effort. And as I listened to her say that on the news, and even though she was obviously talking about her swim, I couldn't help also think of these last couple of chapters in Romans and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It looks like a solitary sport, but it's a team effort. Because the Apostle Paul is a larger-than-life sort of figure, isn't he? And you can sometimes get the impression that his ministry was a solitary sort of thing. It's a sort of a one-man show. But today's section of Romans makes it pretty clear that it's not. It's very much a team effort. And I think seeing that in these last couple of chapters help us to understand what relevance they might have to us. Because they're fascinating chapters, these last ones. Uh, at first glance, they can almost seem too personal to have anything to do with us. I mean, chapter 15, which we just heard read, it's basically all about Paul's travel plans to come to Rome after taking a collection to help Christians out in Jerusalem. And then across in chapter 16, if you run your eye over that chapter, it's just a long list of names, people that Paul is either saying hello to or saying hello from. And so in one sense, you can read the last couple of chapters in Romans and start to wonder what relevance they have for us. I mean, we're not visiting Jerusalem with a collection. We're not on our way to Spain via Rome. We don't know any of the people listed there in the final. What's it got to do with us? Well, it's a fascinating insight into Paul's private world and the picture that we get is that of a team. It's not just Paul, the super apostle, doing his own thing. It's a whole team of people doing lots of different things together. And I think that can help us see what these chapters may in turn have to do with us. So let's dip into them under the headings of the task, the team and the teamwork. Firstly, the task. What's the activity that actually ties together all the travel plans that we've just heard about and the people that get mentioned in the next chapter? Well, I think Paul offers a pretty good summary of the task in chapter 15, verse 20. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. This is now the 17th week that we have spent in Romans this year. And on the way through, we have discovered some massive theological ideas. Some of the stuff's been hard to follow at different points. 
And yet behind it all, the driving force behind this letter and behind all the theological ideas, the driving force is actually quite a simple one. It's Paul's burning desire for people who don't know Jesus to get to know Jesus, to get to know about him and what he's done. And ever since chapter 1, that desire of Paul has been on view. Back in chapter 1, Paul talked of himself being set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, being obligated to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, being eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, of not being ashamed of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. And virtually ever since the very first verse of this letter, Paul's mind has been completely one-tracked. People need to hear about Jesus. It's why he's written the letter in the first place. The guy's never been to Rome in person, but he's heard that there's some Christians there, so he's keen to visit them to make sure that they know all the good stuff that there is to know about Jesus, but he so badly wants them to know all the stuff about Jesus that he can't wait to be there in person, and so he has sent off this extraordinary letter to explain how extraordinary Jesus is. In fact, did you notice verse 15 in the reading? I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace given me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Paul actually knows that some of the stuff that he's put in this letter, they already know. But he's very happy to remind them of it again and to do it quite boldly at points because such is the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through Jesus' death on the cross, we can be pardoned from our sin. Everything we have ever done wrong, completely wiped clean. And that's just the start of what Jesus Christ achieves for us. We now have peace with God, Paul has written in Romans. We are now in Christ. We have died to sin. We are alive to God. We have Christ. We have God's spirit in us to help us put sin to death in our life and to strive for obedience of faith. And having the spirit of God testifies that we're also God's children. We're heirs of God. We're co-heirs of Christ. We're more than conquerors. We are waiting with full assurance of a new creation to arrive. Friends, Romans has told us astonishing things about Jesus and what he has done for us and who we are now because of him. And they are all feeding this, this burning passion within the Apostle Paul that people need to hear this news. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Often when we drive to Sydney nowadays and we're going over the Blue Mountains and you're sort of going through all those road works that they're currently doing and you know they're, they're widening all the road and making into a dual carriage, I often think as we drive through there just what a massive project that is. The way it places they've cut the entire hillside away to make way for the road or alternatively they've built the whole road up into overpasses and I and as we drive through I just think to myself that is such a massive venture I can't begin to imagine how you start that it's such an ambitious task I, I wouldn't know I wouldn't have a clue how to go about doing that but if you think about it the apostle Paul's task is even more ambitious he wants to change the world. And he knows exactly how to go about it. It's by telling people who don't know about Jesus, about Jesus. 
And the really neat thing is that you and I can still be involved in exactly this same task, especially so when we now notice some of the things about the team that's mentioned in the next chapter, chapter 16, the team of people who are involved with Paul in this, in this venture. Chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Caesarea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And so the chapter will now go on to mention about 33 different people. And the majority of people who get mentioned, we know nothing about. Some of them, like Priscilla and Aquila there in verse 3, and Timothy down in verse 21, and a bloke named Gaius down in verse 23, we know about them from other bits of the New Testament. Aquila was a tent maker that Paul met in, in Corinth, and he and his wife Priscilla became travel companions with Paul. Timothy, he's of course Paul's minister, young ministry apprentice. Gaius is probably the same Gaius who Paul said he baptised in Corinth. And it's also the Gaius probably that, that the Apostle John wrote the letter of 3 John 2. But apart from those people, the other people mentioned, they're all a bit unknown. Uh, Erastus in verse 23, we're told, is a director of public works. So he sounds like he's pretty high up in society. Meanwhile, some of the others, Urbanus, verse 9, Rufus, verse 13, evidently, evidently, they were really common slave names. So those guys might have been slaves. But what it sounds like is just a really mixed bag of people. You've got women, you've got men, you've got Gentile-sounding names, you've got Jewish-sounding names, you've got people who seemed as if they might have been slaves. Meanwhile, you've got other people who seem as if they're right up in the social hierarchy and they're all working as a team around Paul to help people who don't know about Jesus know about Jesus. And I reckon that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think it's interesting that the final chapter of Romans is dominated by people rather than ideas. I mean, think about it. Here we are at the end of a majestic letter which is full of profound theological insights and teachings and yet here we are in the final chapter and it's not dominated by some grand, epic, academic synthesis of everything. It's not dominated by some blazing new theological insight. It's dominated by just a, a list of ordinary people. Mind you, that's not to say there isn't a lovely little summary at the very end of the chapter, right at the very end of the book in the last three verses. There is a nice little summary. It's worth having a look at that very briefly. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey me. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that actually is a nice summary to the letter. It picks up some nice key words, especially that phrase in verse 26 where he talks about all the nations that they might believe and obey him. That's a nice phrase. Sadly, the NIV misses it a little bit uh, because the actual phrase there used is the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith which is an unusual phrase that came out of chapter 1 as well. So for those with eyes to see it, Romans is bookend by that phrase, the obedience of faith at the beginning and at the end. And that's a phrase that pretty much summarises the book. 
Faith dominates the first half of the book, what God has done for us, what we put our faith in. And obedience dominates the second half of the book, that now because of who we are in Christ, we strive for obedience. We consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It's actually an ingenious little summary right there at the end. But the point is it's very little and it's so subtle that the NIV completely misses it because as a whole, the chapter is dominated not by ideas but by people. Ordinary people. And I think that's again a reminder that behind all the grand theology of Romans, behind it all, it's a very simple thought. People need to hear the news regarding Jesus Christ. And ordinary people can help that happen. Which leads to a second encouraging thought that comes out of this team that's listed off there in chapter 16. And that is to return to the opening thought, it's so obvious that Paul's ministry is not a one-man show when you read through that. This is a cast bigger than Ben-Hur. Lots and lots of people doing lots and lots of different things, but they're all working together to help people become Christians, and that should stir us along, I think. Because sometimes it's hard to relate to the Apostle Paul, isn't it? I mean, that guy, he's so intense at times and he's so full on and his ideas and his teachings can be hard to follow as we found as we've gone through the book. But, but all these other people in this last chapter, they sound like regular people. I'm a regular person. Maybe we could get involved. Well, of course we can. And because as well as this chapter being helpful in listing the team... These two chapters help us have some idea of the teamwork that's going on as well, the sort of teamwork that we can still be involved in to help people who don't know about Jesus hear about Jesus. I mean, the first and most obvious thing that comes out of these verses is that you've got people who are actually talking to other people about Jesus. Paul himself. We know from other bits of the Bible that Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, they're all doing this. They're looking for opportunities. They're creating opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Now, we could actually do that. Okay, we're not the Apostle Paul. We don't have all his authority and his insight, but we can still do this to the best of our ability to actually have conversations with people we know about Jesus. It's actually what we thought about during the course of your life earlier this year. If you did that course, you recall, it was all about God's agenda for the world and how we can be involved in it. And for those of us who did, do you remember how that course finished? It finished with the thought that the next step is a person. The next step is to simply start reading the Bible with another person. For those of us who did the course, how are you going with that? Why not choose to start reading the Bible with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet? There's other sorts of teamwork going on here in these chapters. I mean, think about the collection that we heard about in chapter 15 to Jerusalem. Verse 25. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to have a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul's commending people for thoughtfully putting aside money to help support God's people. Jerusalem was in a time of famine. Uh, Paul urged Gentile Christians outside Jerusalem to dig deep and help their brothers and sisters. Maybe that's a work we can do, to just support brothers and sisters in Christ. Adopt a couple of missionaries of your own. Send money. Don't be content just to sort of simply support ministries 
vaguely through DPC, take a personal interest. Personally sign up. Talk to Kelvin this morning. Get some names and addresses of pastors that you can personally help support. Outreach ministries here in Australia, outside of Australia. If, you, if you've got a job, if you get a bit of money during the week, somehow you can be part of a gospel team. You can be involved in preaching the gospel where Christ is not known. There's other people who get mentioned too, like down in verse 23, Gaius, whom Paul commends for his hospitality. Now, I mentioned before, Gaius is probably the same guy who John wrote to in 3 John. In that letter, he's also commended for his hospitality. Maybe that's a work we can do. The teamwork of hospitality. The teamwork of opening our homes to newcomers to church. The teamwork of opening our homes to missionaries or or, or visiting gospel workers as they come through Dubbo. The teamwork of running a Christianity Explain course out of your home for your neighbourhood. Maybe you're not sure about leading that, but you could open your home. If you live in a house, if you can make a cup of tea or coffee, you can be part of a gospel team. You can be part of preaching the gospel where Christ is not known. There's another really important bit of teamwork going on here. Did you notice at the end of chapter 15, verse 30? I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. The great Apostle Paul is asking for prayer support. And notice how he describes it. He describes it that by praying for him, the Roman church there in verse 30 is joining him, joining him in his struggle. That's a very dynamic picture of prayer. That Paul says praying for him is like being there with him. That they might be, they might be miles away in another country, but the power of prayer actually closely links those people into the work that Paul is actually doing. We could do that. Take some time each day to pray for evangelism, pray for outreach, talk with God about specific ministries that you're aware of through the mission of the month or different things. All you need is a quiet moment alone with God each day and you can be part of a gospel team. All you need is a quiet moment to talk with God each day and you can be involved in preaching the gospel where Christ is not known. And let's face it, why would we not want to play a part in this sort of teamwork? Because if nothing else, as we have gone through Romans this year, surely the thing that has become overwhelmingly clear, there is nothing more important than people who don't know Jesus getting to know Jesus. Because Romans has told us that there is not a man, woman or child on the face of this planet who does not need Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are not going to meet a person this week who does not need to know about Jesus. And so Romans, an extraordinary book, it ends with travel plans and a list of people. It ends with a task and a team and teamwork. It ends with arrangements being made so as to help people who don't know about Jesus Get to know Jesus. 
If you've ever watched that movie, Amazing Grace, you'll know that it tells the story of William Wilberforce's efforts to stop the slave trade. And the grand, definitive, climactic moment finally comes when the British House of Commons uh, dramatically votes to abolish slavery. And that momentous vote, that big moment, is climactic moment of the movie and it's usually what all the history books focus on. But behind that big moment was a lifetime of faithful work going on by a team of unsung heroes, not the least of whom was a bloke named Isaac Milner. Isaac Milner never gets an appearance in the movie whatsoever. But long before the vote in the House of Commons, Isaac Milner took the then young William Wilberforce on a hiking holiday in France. And on that trip, by reading the New Testament with him, Isaac Milner explained the gospel to Wilberforce and led him to Christ. Two men reading the Bible on a holiday. Doesn't seem as big or nearly as important as legislation passing through Parliament. Yet everything has a part of a bigger picture. Lots of ordinary people doing ordinary things to help someone who doesn't know Jesus know Jesus. And it changes the world. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. That's not a bad ambition to have. And there are lots of ways to be involved in it. And people get saved. And the world gets changed. And Christ is honoured. I'll pray. Father, thank you for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And Father, we pray that we would be so affected by it that we would understand so clearly the extraordinary things that we enjoy through your grace because of Jesus Christ, that you would work in our lives a deep desire and a burning ambition to share that good news with all that we have contact with. Please give us good ideas, creative ideas, about how we can be involved in preaching your gospel where Christ is not yet known. And Father, we would be delighted, we'd be thrilled if you would use even us to grow your kingdom and uh, bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.